I got the Wahoo text from him yesterday, and I thought, we have to celebrate today as well. Very, very cool. So, very, very fun. Shift the gears. In your bulletin, you all should have the notes for the service or for the message. Pull them out real quick. You can even shake them. Now, I want you to do something else. We're all, we're all modern folk here. We all have a phone. Take out your phone. Now, if it's like my phone, you have a little spot right down here at the button where you can turn on your camera. Turn on your camera. You got your camera on? Now, I want you to go to the bottom part of these notes, right to that little thing there, and you're going to see that as you do that, you can log into and become a part of our Financial Peace University class. You can just click right on that. It'll bring you right to a spot where you can sign in, where you can register, where you can get the resources for our Financial Peace University class. As you see, I just did it. It brings you right to that spot. And so I would encourage you to do that. Now, Connor told me to tell you, listen, if you come, it doesn't mean you have to cut up your credit card. <laughs> but Dave would encourage you to do that, and he would encourage you to do that, because as we said last week, so many people have credit cards and they live in debt because they use those cards. It's an unsecured debt, often at like 15 to 18, maybe 20 some odd percent interest. And so if we're looking to have financial peace, having interest that's 15, 18, or 20 some odd percent that does not give you peace, it creates anxiety, stress, distress. So he would discourage you from having a credit card. He would say use a debit card. So, but we won't necessarily force you to cut it up. So, but that's one of the things he does encourage you to do. But anyway... This is a class we're doing. We're going to be doing this on February 19th. And if you are interested in plugging in and being part of that, I want to encourage you to take advantage of that. As Bill shared last week, it's a, it's a, it's a great tool. It was very helpful to them as they started to wrestle through figuring out how to find financial victory in their life and stability in their life. Others have gone through this. In fact, as we signed up for the class, someone this past week sent me a text message or an email and said, can I come to the class? I have no idea who they are. Can I come to the class? I said, sure, as long as you have the, the FPU materials, you're, you're free to come. Did they give me the requirement? You have to have the FPU materials to come to the class. But if you, but if you have that, absolutely come. So I would encourage you again just to take advantage of that and plug in. And, and walk in that journey. And I'm going to cough one second. Excuse me. I did not want to do that loudly in your ear. All right. Well, let's have a word of prayer. I can appreciate that. I resonate. So thank you for sharing the cough with me. All right. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into things. Father, I just want to say thank you so very much this morning for your goodness to us for watching over us, for loving us. Father, just for the great opportunity we had this morning to sing songs that just capture our spirit. But Father, in that process, to invite us into your presence, to invite us to acknowledge you, to see you, to glorify you, to just celebrate the amazingness and awesomeness of who you are. 
Father, that's so much about what we need to be about to to acknowledge you, to see you. Father, I would just ask that through the events of this morning as we start a conversation in James, as we look at some of the things that are in front of us, that, Father, you would just be at work. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. So if you have your Bibles, you have it on your phone, you have, a, you have a physical copy, maybe you're like me, you have it on your computer, you want to bring your computer, you can do that. But let's turn to James chapter 1, and then as we would read through and look at what we have on the screen as well, we can just read through that. I want to read through verses 1 to 4. It says, James, a servant of God and to the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that these testing, the, the, know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, I say this to people often words mean things, just a pause. So, and lacking what? Nothing. So that means you have most of what you need? Have a good portion of what you need? It means you got almost everything? There we go. Thank you. (laughs) Persistence. That's right. Lacking nothing. Again, I, I like how words mean things. Again, we're... It's the resonation of the language I say to my boys. Words mean things. Again, words mean things. Lacking nothing. We're going to look at this in a minute. But let's go back to the very beginning of this whole conversation and, and come back to the very beginning of James, a servant of God, and to the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. Does anyone know who's writing this? It's, it's, it's right there. It's James. <laughs> okay, it's James. But when we say James, it's not James, the brother of John. Because when you look at Acts 12, you see that James in Acts 12 was executed, martyred by, by, by one of the Herods. Okay? You then also in Acts 12 see that Peter was arrested, and he was going to do the same thing to Peter. And then as you read the text and walk through the text and look what happens, you see that Peter is miraculously rescued. Herod throws a fit. But then things change. But then it says there in that text that James, Peter said, tell James, I'm good. And then he, he exits, this, he pretty much exits Hebrews at that, or Acts mostly at that point. When we talk about James, we're talking about James, the brother of Jesus. So this is the writer who's writing right now. So here's some some of the things that are interesting. Probably, as far as what the scholars would say, probably the first book of the New Testament written. So when you sit down and you say, I'm going to read the Bible, I'm going to read some of the New Testament, I'm going to just kind of walk through the scriptures, he's writing to a group of people who don't have any of the New Testament letters yet. They don't have any of the letters of Paul. 
At this point in time, Paul may be on his first missionary journey. He's maybe up in Antioch. You see a little bit later that Paul's being commissioned, but at least he's up in Antioch. He's made a decision for Christ at this point in time. May not have started, probably hasn't started his first missionary journey. So none of the letters that Paul wrote, Book of Romans isn't written. First and Second Corinthians, they aren't written. Hasn't, he hasn't met Timothy yet, or, or I don't probably hasn't met Titus yet either. None of the books of the New Testament have been written. None of the Gospels have been written. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have not yet been written. As we come to the scriptures, we begin with a starting point, and we have all of this history that we automatically start with. And as we have questions, as we wrestle through things, we automatically can go back and look at all that is recorded. We can see all of what has already taken place. We can read from any of those letters that are there, and we can kind of start to sift through and get an understanding and a perspective of what's going on. And we can wrestle through our questions, and we can start to answer them because we have all of this history. We have all of these letters. But as James is sitting down to write this first letter, not a single word has yet been written of the New Testament. The first word of the New Testament is James. And so he's writing to people who are new in their relationship with Jesus as well. The church at this point in time, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ has been starting to percolate and sift through the world as Jews have been dispersed from Jerusalem and as Jews are going to different areas of the world, but the church is maybe 15, 18 years old. That's as long as the church has been around. Now again, we stand here and we stand on 2,000 years of history. But at this point in time, there's the, the, the world doesn't fully understand yet the message of Jesus. They don't fully understand yet that these people who are talking about this Jewish Messiah are significantly distinct and different from the message of Judaism. They, the world doesn't fully understand that yet. But they're starting to spread out and start to communicate the news of Jesus. A number of things have happened in going, coming up to this point. We, we read in the beginning of Acts, we start to, to see the day of Pentecost and all those events as they start to happen and some amazing things start to happen and the gospel starts to impact in the city of Jerusalem. And again, on that day of Pentecost, what happens as, as Peter starts to communicate, as Peter starts to preach, people are hearing Peter preach in their own native language. So I'm going to pick on Davies for a second. If Davies were in that crowd, he wouldn't be hearing English. What language would they hear? What's, what's your native language from back, in, back home? Droba? Okay. I have difficulty saying it. Okay. But if Davies were in that crowd, I would be standing next to him. I would be hearing English, and he would be hearing... Droba. 
Okay, again, I can't really say it. We would be both hearing the same message, but we would be hearing it in a different language. That's one of the unique things and crazy things that was happening on the day of Pentecost. Because all of them were there in that city. They were all there listening to the message of Peter. But they were hearing the language, and then they were hearing the message in their native language. And the Holy Spirit and God was doing an amazing launch of the message in the church of Jesus Christ. The church started to grow. And, and at that point in time, the, the Hebrew leaders and, and the leaders of the, of, the, of the temple, they didn't quite know what to do with these guys. And they tried to shut them up. They tried to persecute them. They tried to silence them. It didn't really work. And the church continued to grow by leaps and bounds. And then a number of years later, we read about Stephen. And with the ministry of Stephen and the, and the execution of Stephen, Stephen stood up, he preached a message, he preached a message they didn't want to hear because he talked to them about the hardness of their hearts and how they executed Jesus. They didn't want to hear that message, they stoned him. And from that point, persecution started to erupt in Jerusalem. And from that point, Jewish Christians were spread throughout the world. They started to disperse. They started to leave and they started to go back to their native homes and native areas and they started to spread. In that process, the Jewish, the church leaders, many of the apostles still stayed in Jerusalem and they weren't being harassed, but the followers of Jesus mostly were until Herod had James, the brother of John, arrested and executed and then he saw that people liked it so much he had Peter arrested and so we're dealing with a situation where the church is now being pushed out it's being spread out and it's being pushed out and spread out because of persecution but in that process and in the flow of things that were taking place one of the things that happened is that God was working in the church and God was starting to elevate James, the brother of Jesus, as a leader in the church of Jerusalem. And so by the time you come to Acts 12 and Peter is being pushed out and chased out of Jerusalem because of the persecution that is now taking place, the key leader or the key elder in the church of Jerusalem is now James, the brother of Jesus. Now, in this whole process, God lays it on his heart then to write a letter and to have a conversation with the many Jews. That's what Kimi writes. And he says in this whole conversation, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. He's starting to write to the followers of Jesus who have been cast out. Now, another little thing that you may or may not know Already at this point in history, many Jewish individuals have already been dispersed into the known world. They, they would have little enclaves of gatherings in different places, and they were dispersed through all of the known world. Many as businessmen, craftsmen, tradesmen. And a lot of the Jews that had come to Jerusalem to worship and had come to Jerusalem to 
do things at the temple and to celebrate God at the temple, when they came to Jerusalem to celebrate God at the temple, that's when they heard the message of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many stayed to continue to grow, but when they were pushed out, they went back to their various home areas. And so again, now as James is writing, he's writing to them and he's having a conversation with them about what they are experiencing now as followers of Jesus who are starting to be persecuted. But again, they're hungry, but they're now the, the context of where they can go and ask questions, the context the, the, of where they can go and say, hey, what's going on? How is this happening? They've been pushed out of that context, and so they have questions, but they don't always have a lot of places to go and a lot of people to talk to because the people they would talk to, the people they would ask questions of are back in Jerusalem, but they can't go back to Jerusalem because they are being persecuted. They've been pushed out, so who do I talk to? Who do I have a conversation with? And so James writes a letter starting to talk about things they're experiencing to help them to start laying the foundations of their journey in following Jesus. In this whole conversation, I think it's really interesting. Because as James starts this conversation, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you notice what he didn't say? James, the brother of Jesus. That's what he didn't say. Do you ever interact with people who draw their identity and their influence because of their affiliation or connection to someone else. And they then try to leverage that other person's popularity, that other person's power, the other person's position from a distance, but through them, but they're over here. It was interesting last night around the dinner table. We're talking about football and we have two playoff games today and all that kind of stuff. I see somewhere in the colors. And um, unfortunately, yes, the, giant, the Cowboys lost, but uh, sorry. <laughs> uh, but I have to say, I'm, I'm glad that the NFC East has put up a good showing. Makes me hopeful for this coming year. But anyway, but he, he would give me back and says, yes, but also the Giants lost. <laughs> all right, sad, sad, sad day. All right. Anyway, we're having this conversation around the dinner table, and we, and we talked about, we started talking about a player. And Kyle goes, Oh, I can't stand that. I can't stand that. Now, here's what's interesting the thing is, is he couldn't stand them because of them. That wasn't the issue, they were fine. It was some of that individual's family members that were annoying and obnoxious. That irritated him. He says, have you ever heard, heard, listen to them, and have you seen how they interact, and have you seen the stuff that they do? They're so obnoxious. They're so annoying. Had nothing to do with the individual. It's, it's the individual's family members who are behaving badly 
but it affects the attitude towards the individual being discussed. James doesn't fall into this trap. James is not so, hey, I'm James. The brother of Jesus. You need to listen to me. He doesn't do that. He doesn't play that card at all. In fact, he plays and presents and stands behind a very different card. James, a servant of God. He doesn't draw any familial identity at all. He doesn't try to build himself up through his relationship to Jesus. He accepts and identifies himself as in the role of a servant. But he says, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he places himself in the servant role of Jesus. Now, I have two brothers and two sisters. I love my brothers and I love my sisters. I would do just about anything to really be helpful to my brothers and sisters. But I don't think I would define myself as a servant of. Now, I might describe myself as the needler of, or the teaser of, the poker of, but I wouldn't use the language of the servant of. And I definitely wouldn't call one of them Lord. Okay? I love them. I would do just about anything for them. But he takes an incredibly humble approach. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He recognizes his relationship as it truly and really is. Because here's what's crazy. You and I, if we're in Jesus, we are brothers with him or sisters with him as children of the Father. We are also siblings of Jesus. Because we have been adopted in Christ and been placed into the family of God through our relationship with Jesus. Now again, I told you I have two brothers and two sisters. I want to tell you my sisters are just as much my family as my brothers are my family. My brothers are biological, my sisters are adopted. Both of my sisters also became naturalized citizens of the United States. But my sisters are just as much family as my brothers. We are family. We have been adopted. We have been placed in our family. 
You guys know the reality of our kids. All of our boys are adopted. Are you, 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 you're up for fighting words if you're saying my boys aren't my boys. Okay? I'm going to put you in a headlock and hurt you. <laughs> now, I'll try not to hurt you. I'm, you know, but <laughs> I'm maybe slightly damage you, but <laughs> you get the point. They're family. The process of adoption is where we become family. And part of the reality is as James is writing to the followers of Jesus, these Jewish followers of Jesus scattered abroad, they are also family. Siblings of Jesus because they have also been adopted by the Father and placed into the family of God with Jesus. Making sense? I totally appreciate the fact that James is humble in his attitude. He's humble in his response. He sees himself correctly, not arrogantly, as he interacts with others. Huge. Now, should that have some impact in us and how we interact with people? It should have a huge impact. Just as James has been humble... And therefore then, as we interact with other people, as we talk to them about the hope of Jesus, as we talk to them about what it means to walk with and know Jesus, we should interact in a similarly humble way. We should not claim affiliation and and arrogance by connection. Rather, we should practice humility as we invite others to be a part of the journey and become part of the family. All right. He continues, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to, be, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. I flipped those, the conversation there in the notes, but I think you probably could follow. Let's look at verses 2 to 4. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Is that your typical attitude? As, as circumstances go sideways, do you go, yes? <laughs> Apparently not. We don't. That's when we have to sometimes go back to sanctification class because thoughts either that come out of our mouth or through our head need to be redefined and reshaped because things are going sideways. And we don't always have a good reaction. Consider it pure joy, or consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. This is where we come back and say, okay, God, just time out. And they're they're probably right away at this point going, James, time out. Are you sure you're listening? Because these trials have been a royal pain in the neck. These trials have been life-altering. These trials have been painful. These trials have... We've lost family members. James, these trials are a burden on our life. And 
James, I want to use some really unsanctified language right now to tell you what I think of these trials because they are not pleasant. They are not enjoyable. I can't stand it. I hate what's going on. I hate the fact that we've been pushed, shoved, twisted, bent, manipulated, and, and twisted in pretzel rod shapes and pushed to various places. And we've been treated badly. We've lost opportunities in business. Family doesn't want to talk to us. James, I'm not sure I'm considering it joy. And James, I'd really like to have a conversation with you right now. I would like to be in Jerusalem right now to kind of come nose to nose with you right now and say to you, I think you're wrong. I'm not sure I want to say, consider it great joy. Because I don't like it. Most of us don't like trials. We just don't. It's not pleasant. It's miserable. It's... But here's the thing about joy. Again, words mean things. He doesn't say consider great happiness. Happiness overwhelmingly is based upon our circumstances. Are you happy? Yes, I'm happy because right now the circumstances are positive. Are you happy? No. Why not? Because the circumstances aren't positive. But joy is different than happiness. Joy motivates us to look beyond the circumstances. It motivates us to look beyond the things that are happening around us. And joy motivates us to look at who we are in Jesus and to celebrate the goodness and the greatness and the awesomeness of what we have in our relationship with Jesus and to look beyond the circumstances and to recognize and acknowledge that despite the terrible things that are going on, I am God's child. I am forgiven. I am loved. I am included in the body of Christ. And we start to shift our gaze. We start to shift our attitude. We start to shift our mindset off of the immediate circumstances that surround us, and we start to be able to focus on the amazing and wonderful and great things that we have in Jesus. Because joy is based on our position and our relationship with Christ. It is not based on the circumstances of life. And we can consider it great joy. But then he goes on because he starts to give some foundation of why we should consider it joy. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. When I was in high school, I ran track. I did not run cross country. I ran track. I didn't do the 440. I didn't do the 880, or whatever you call it today. I didn't run the mile. I didn't run the two-mile relay. I pole vaulted. I ran less than the length of the auditorium. I put a stick in the ground. I went for a short ride, and then I would do it again. It was a blast. I had a lot of fun. But in the beginning of track season, 
the track coach, Mr. Drummond, would say to us, hit the road. And he would make us run the cross-country route for the first week of track. He did that for a couple of reasons. First of all, he did it to do some weeding. So those that wanted to come out and run track but didn't really want to put any effort into running track, he weeded out the ones who really weren't going to be good team players because by the end of that first week, they were done and tired of running the, the, the cross-country route, and they quit. But the other thing that happened is that most of us had not been running around and exercising a whole lot over the winter. And so as he told us, go run, we started to work at getting in shape. Now the killer is that about eight-tenths of the way through the cross-country route, you came to a hill. Now the good news is it wasn't long, but it was steep. And then you had a long slide, gradual run down the hill before a gentle run up the hill back to the school. But this killed you. In fact, I would say to you, by the time you got here, you were pretty much dead already anyway. I hate running long distance. And at one point in time, Mr. Drummond asked me if I wanted to run in the 440 or something else. And I said, absolutely not. From here to the doors is fine for me. That's as much as I want to run. I get a little ride when I'm done, I'm good. I don't have to run any further than that. But what would happen? We would do that week, all week long, every day. And what happened? We started to build endurance. And by the end of the weeks, you get to the hill, and you're going up the hill a little bit better than you were at the beginning of the week. And the guys that are ultimately going to run the mile or do the two mile, they would run these routes more and because they were continuing to work on their endurance. And then after they worked on their endurance, they then started to work on their speed. I was never the first guy through. Okay? I was at the back of the pack, and I was totally content to be at the back of the pack because I didn't feel like running miles and miles and miles. I wasn't interested in running miles and miles and miles. But the guys that like to do the running events, they would build up their endurance and then they would work on their speed. And you would see these guys running around the track. And in all honesty, I'm on the inside of the track while they are running on the outside of the track. And I would say to myself, you guys are nuts. But they continued to build their endurance. So the time track season came, and it was time to run the race. They could run, and they could run well, because they had built up and prepared themselves to run, run, run. You like to run. He likes to run. Love him. I'll come watch. (laughs) 
Now, in this process, what is going on here? The testing of our faith does what? It produces endurance. Just as we train our bodies for the different things that we compete in or participate in. And just as when I was young and we trained our bodies and and as I watched others train themselves particularly for the race around the track. There was a training, there was a preparation process in place that produced endurance. And part of the testing and trying process for us is learning endurance as followers of Jesus. And that's part of why then we can look at the hardship and we can look at the trials and have joy. When I was in college, I had a roommate who loved to run. He loved it. He couldn't wait to go out after class and go run for 10, 15 miles. I'm serious. Yes, I consider it kind of nuts. But he loved it. And he would run. Endurance. He would run and he would have joy. He said he'd get the the runner's high. It's just up by myself. It's peaceful. I can just enjoy it. You kind of get in the zone. You get focused. And that's part of the journey also with the endurance of trial. We start to look beyond the circumstances. We start to look beyond the things that are happening. And we start to see the end. And the end of the, the finish line is being transformed and being shaped after the image of Jesus. We start to see the finish line. We see the the fruit of the process becoming more and more and more and more like Jesus and learning to have the attitude of Jesus in the circumstances in which we are running the race of life. See, that's the goal, to run the light race and learn endurance so that we can become more and more like who Jesus is. And James is writing, he's saying, guys, listen, there is a purpose to the trial. There's a purpose to the hardship. It's not arbitrary. It's not by accident. God has a purpose. So run the race. Allow the trials to exist. Run through the trials. Run. But keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Don't don't fix your eye on the hill and go, oh, my goodness, the hill is coming. Keep your eye on the finish line. Keep your eye on the goal of what's seeking to be pursued. Don't don't focus in on the pain in your side. Don't focus in on the cramps in your legs. Don't focus in on that stuff. Focus in on the end point. Focus in on the goal of what is being accomplished. Because, you know, the testing of your faith produces endurance. And as God produces that endurance, we're able to run the race better and better and better, and better, and better. There are some guys who would come to that hill, and they would just zip up that hill. They looked forward to the challenge of hitting the hill hard. Because they developed the endurance. And let endurance have its full effect 
so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. We look at the trials that we face, and sometimes as we face these trials, our initial immediate reaction is to say, God, please take this trial away. God, please remove this hardship. God, please remove this difficulty. God, please remove this annoyance. God, would you please take this person and have them get fired, have them move offices, have their car break down. And we, we, we have all these conversations with God about the various things that are annoying us, frustrating us, irritating us. And we have these conversations about how God can alter the circumstances, alter the situation, so these irritations, these annoyances, or these people can disappear from our life and so that life can be so much easier, so much more comfortable, so much more convenient. And James is writing, and he says, yes, you should be pray, but pray for the endurance, not the removal of the trial. You you should consider the trial a pathway of joy, not a pathway of irritation. You should consider the trial something that allows you to fix your eyes on Jesus and become more like Jesus instead of an obstacle that you have to grind through begrudgingly, painfully, angrily. Consider it pure joy, my friends, when you experience various trials. Because the trials produce endurance. And as the endurance in our lives is developed, we become complete and mature, lacking nothing. You ever watch those people that step into a situation and it doesn't seem to phase them? You know why they can do that? Huh? Not to their glory, ultimately to God's glory, but they can do that because they've been in that situation before. They step into chaos, and it seems like the chaos swirls around them, but the chaos doesn't become a part of them. Why? Because they have learned endurance. Because they have learned to walk the journey well. And they have learned to look and rise above the chaos, to rise above the confusion. And they don't allow the confusion to become a part of their journey. They recognize that the chaos impacts them. They recognize it influences them. But they also recognize it's an opportunity to allow them to be shaped after the image and character of Jesus. And it gives them the opportunity to reflect that in the circumstances around them and into the situation that's taking place. And amazingly what happens is as that circumstance starts to unfold and they start to respond in the character and the love of Jesus and they start to respond with the things that God has built into them It's amazing how those circumstances start to change because they start to influence the circumstances that exist and they start to deflate the intensity. They start to change the attitude. And all of a sudden, what seems unsolvable, you know, impossible to address, answers start to come and solutions start to present. An endurance ability to continue to navigate well through that situation surfaces up. Why? Because they have learned the process of living well, celebrating Jesus in the midst of the circumstances that are grueling to God's glory, and they lack 
nothing. So as James is starting to talk to those that have been dispersed, as he's starting to have a conversation with those who are saying, what do I do? Who do I talk to? How do I manage this? And they don't have, they, they, they can't go read the ministry of Jesus and they can't go to the Gospels and, and, and read again of what Jesus said. They can talk about the things that Jesus said because they've heard the stories, they've heard the accounts and they can have conversations with their fellow believers about the things that have taken place but they don't have chapter and verse to go to. They can't sit down and just pour themselves through the word. They can go to the, they can go to the Psalms and they can go to the Old Testament but they don't have anything of the New Testament yet to go to. Nothing. And James's encouragement at the very beginning. Consider it joy. You've been chased from Jerusalem because of persecution, because of your faith in Jesus. As you start to face trials, consider it joy. Consider it joy. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And endurance... And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. God's building in us. He's strengthening us. He's equipping us. He's doing that for you. Let him finish that work. That's what he's saying. Now, sometimes we hear that news and we go, you've got to be kidding me. But you want to know something? When we apply it, and we start to live it out, you know what happens? The trials come, and the trials that were mountains before become little steps to step over. Why? Because we have learned to endure. We have learned to overcome. And we have experienced the joy of the presence of of God in our lives through the journey. Let's pray together. Father, I want to say thank you so very much for your goodness to us, for the richness that comes to us through Jesus. And Father, I would just ask that as we prepare to head into this week and the various things that will impact our lives and influence our lives, Father, I would ask that the very things that we're just talking about today, that we would start to allow your word in your presence to start to influence how we live and how we react and how we respond so that we experience and live out the truth of that relationship with Jesus so that, Father, we can really know joy and really know your peace. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Brother and sister, if you are here and you are in Christ, you can have joy because God has saved you and because you have a better home waiting for you. You can have joy. And if you're here and like all of us, And you're like, I can't have joy in my trial. Go to him and ask him, God, help me to have joy in what you've placed in my life. My friend, you can have joy in your suffering. 
And if you're here or you're Jesus, I want you to hear that we can have joy in the worst that can happen here because God has saved us through his son and this isn't our home. And this joy and hope is it's unbreakable. And it can be yours too if you trust that Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment for your sin and rose again so that you can be saved. This joy and hope can be yours. And what you can do is after the service, come see me, come see Pastor Andrew, or even on the Connect card say, I want to know more. I I have some questions. Just drop that in the plate. What we're going to do now is we're going to have our offering time. And if you are new here, please feel free to let it pass you. But what's going to happen is as it passes you, we're going to stand and sing to the great God that gives us joy, who is our joy in the suffering and the trials. So let us pray. God, thank you for the reminder that you are so good and so lovely that you are our joy and life and death and sorrow and suffering. God, for everyone here that does know you, my brothers and sisters, God, I pray that you will give them joy in the trials they're struggling through now and in the ones to come. Help us to be a church that does not panic When suffering and trials come, we will trust and rejoice. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room and anyone watching that you will be working in their hearts. Show them that they are a sinner separated from you, but that you sent your son to take their punishment. Lord, I pray you'll be prodding and working in their hearts so that they will trust in you. Jesus, I thank you. And I I pray, God, as we meet after this, that you will give us hope and joy. Lord, I thank you. I ask all these things in your good and faithful name. Amen.